everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Stephen Kotler has spent 30 years researching human performance at its peak. He's worked with hundreds of the highest caliber athletes and has been involved in countless studies to decode performance. With his most recent book, The Art of Impossible, Kotler lays out a framework for using your innate biology to propel you toward success. He calls it going from zero to dangerous. The antiquated approach to shaping your personality around an ideal is long gone. Instead, leaning on and honing in on your naturally evolved instincts will provide the primer for performance. Here it is, episode 446. Hey there, John. Happy New Year again. Oh, happy New Me. Happy New You. Uh, do I look new? Uh, not really. Same old? Same old broken down Like an old uh, catcher's fin? <laughs> uh, that's what I thought your uh, your nickname in high school was. Who told you? Oh, yeah. Catcher's fin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What? what was Wait, that, that was Texas uh, nickname at the 290 West Bar. Yeah, Tic Tac. Yeah. Tic yeah, Tic Tac, the old catcher's fin. <laughs> Hi, Tex. How are you doing? Oh, I'm in the flow state. Are you? Ooh. Spoiler alert. Well, Doing the bull dance, feeling the flow. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you don't have any fear right now. I feel like we got to almost punch you in the face to get you into the flow. Yes, we. And by we, I do mean John. Uh, well, I've got <laughs> You're like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, text I'll, goes I'll down. I'll take the ice pack from my groin region, Groinal. and I'll just put it on my face. Uh, so groin. go ahead and swing uh, away. I a like pack a, of frozen peas, or also a, my or a, or, or a cold ball sack. I mean, well, whatever I, you want on your face. Rumor has it that increases your testosterone. That's right. It doesn't. We'll get into that today. It doesn't. I've already tested it. What? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing. Ing. John's still not saying ing. It's 2021. I think it's a full year. It's a full year. Well, it's look at you, Mr... Mr. Long-term commitment. <laughs> well, you know, it's like compounding interest. Mm-hmm. And then one day you're going to wake up. Next realize, thing you know, one day. Uh, and I Someone say, call it, John set some clear goals <laughs> that have led <laughs> to, to this day. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, we are teasing, teasing little details of today's episode. We're talking with Stephen Kotler, who's author, author and former journalist. Um, action sports. Action sport, former action sport journalist who's dedicated the last couple decades, 30 years to really uncovering the physiology and biology and neurology behind what is referred to as the flow state, The flow, right? Where you're feeling the rhythm, you're feeling the rhyme. Doing the bull dance. Doing the bull dance. Uh, we have an absolutely uh, electrifying chat today. Yeah, no, he's a sharp cat, man. Mm-hmm. He, um, mm-hmm. If you guys aren't familiar with his work, uh, you can probably do a little Google search, but oh, yeah. uh, he wrote uh, the first time I really encountered him was uh, The Rise of Superman, which he came out in 2014, and I connected with it on a Washington Post, and then he, and I haven't read this one, but I ordered it, The Stealing Fire, and then his next book, which is uh, The Art of Impossible, which we're going to discuss today. Yeah, we were fortunate to get an early release, and I got to deep dive, and it's, 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 I like it because it reverse engineers, Mm -hmm. essentially, success and goal setting and finding your purpose and he uses biology the same way that we would rely on the said principle sure. to reverse engineer and develop Jack Street, yeah. Field Strong, different strength and conditioning programs for an athlete's goals. He puts you in a position using biology to find your purpose. Right. And, and I think, you know what I was going to try to jam him up on a little bit? Because we, we got a good, pretty good rapport is like... How is this different than any other self-help book? And I think what's, what is in there is it's a bit demystified, right? I think what he said, he, like, 
what he's managed to do with a lot of the the researchers and colleagues and cohorts that he's brought in is like he I think he said taking the metaphysical of this conceptualized flow state and substantiating it with biology and that's what like that was the big aha moment for me in this in this chat that I how he lays that out and so. that that is essentially sums up the book beautifully yeah and 30 years of his research. So he is the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Yeah. And yeah. a pretty badass, informative website if you get the opportunity to check out Flow Research Collective. And it's always nice to hear like the level of individuality. When someone brings in like they grand a themes yeah. and they, you know, and we talked a little bit, but he's like, no, no, here's how it scales and narrows and kind of tinkers down to the individual. Um, yeah, very interesting. Fun, fun combo. And what, what I really enjoyed was um, I, I've always had this theory that like the world's best athletes and the world's like greatest accomplishments, whether it be, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln or presidents or, you know, great things that nobody really sets out, you know, to do these things. Yeah. They just happen to be the person in the position that puts himself in it, that is able to succeed and, uh, and do something great. And I yeah. think... Like there's this idea that I think from the outside people look at it and they imagine that like, hey, these people, this is what they were destined to do or this was their goal. And it's like, no, I just put myself in this situation and right. fucking did whatever I had to to well, survive. And then like the the gradation leading up to that to yeah. be dealt that, hand, that deck, yeah. that hand of cards and know how to play it. Right. Yeah. Like there is like that accumulating effect. No, I mean, you know, and he was talking a little bit about Elon Musk. I mean, yeah, I mean, he set these three impossible goals, but he had already... Uh, attained some impossible goals. I mean, sure. with PayPal, and if you look at his history, I mean, for him, it was uh, it's a little bit different than like you know us sitting here and being like, hey, we're strengthening this coming, but we're going to go to Mars, right? Right. You know, opposed from a guy who's already kind of come in and done mm -hmm. this. So I mm -hmm. think he's uh, he's had access to some pretty amazing people, and he's written some pretty killer books. Should we get into the convo? Let's do it. Well, let's not waste any more time. Do you well, have any jokes? And this is part one, right? Because we're gonna, yeah, this we gotta, is part one. Gotta be. We're gonna fucking tear him up mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so part two undetermined timeline but it's coming ladies and gentlemen let's get to Stephen Collar bye let's do it oh I'm in hi oh. <laughs> bye hi uh, I'm Stephen I write books and I'm the executive uh, chairman of the flow research collective and we are a uh, peak performance research and training organization we study the neurobiology of peak human performance so what's going on in the brain and the body when we're performing at our best and we use this uh this route and we do this in conjunction with everybody from like usc ucla imperial college london places like that and we use the information to work with and train everybody from kind of fortune 100 ceos through olympic athletes through yoga moms from ohio we sort of work with everybody um and uh and the new book, Iron Possible, is it's 30 years of research into um, the neurobiology of peak human performance. I think, could be wrong, but I think it's the first time in history somebody has written a book about the entire kind of suite, the cognitive peak performance suite. There's a, there's a set of tools. I think a lot of people are familiar with a lot of the pieces, whether we're talking focus or mindfulness or gratitude or whatever. And I think the Iron Impossible, the new book that we're going to talk about today, is the first time we've got to look at the whole big picture. So that's me. That's what we're going to do today, I think. I hope it did okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, awfully humble from what we have uh, were aware of of your work and, you know, listened to previous podcast episodes that you've been on. The um, I got a question for you on this, this the flow concept and achieving this pinnacle and peak performance. 
is there a, like, can this, this may be selfish as a father, like, can you start instilling this at a young age on how to access this? Or is there a level of maturity, you know, emotional, spiritual, physiological maturity you have to get to first? So you're asking a, a phenomenally great question. And, and the answer is, I don't know. Shit. Uh, and nobody, I think, knows. <laughs> but let me tell you, there's two sides to this. So what we know is at least now there's a full, our impossible is about a full suite of tools, right? But when it comes mm -hmm. to flow, which is the optimal state of consciousness, children are actually especially flow prone. Some of the neurobiological changes in flow, like the deactivation, the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right mm -hmm. behind your forehead, or uh, where brain waves go into the alpha and theta range. So kids are naturally developmentally flow prone. Their prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until you're basically in your 20s. So you have an advantage there. And their brain waves are much closer. They, they spend a lot more. We're in beta. That's a fast moving brain wave. It means I'm awake, I'm alert, I'm paying attention. And often I'm a little anxious. Kids are in alpha, which is much more daydream mode. It's a lot closer to baseline flow. So on that front, very much yes. Simultaneously, um, there's pretty good research out of action sports. And I wrote about this mm -hmm. a little bit in my older book, Rise of Superman, that says, hey, and the, like the best example is skateboarding, where the consequences are so high falling down wise that people are just sort of learning this stuff very early, even kids are, um, you sort of have to. And uh, coaches are, are training kids a little bit earlier in this stuff. And that's one of the reasons perhaps you see so many 13 year olds winning the X games and skateboarding. It doesn't really happen in other sports. There's a bunch of strength stuff going on as well. And there's so much physical stuff on that. What I just said, it's hard to tease that out and point and say, yes, it's exactly this flow stuff, mm -hmm. but that seems to be a part of it. The other thing I will tell you though, because there's a, you asked a really great question on the other side of it is, there is a level of self-awareness that is really required. So you're gonna, it's not just training kids in flow. Flow is remarkably easy to train. You can get a lot of great results um, training flow. The problem is it's hard to stabilize them because all this stuff that flow amplifies, learning, creativity, motivation, grit, all that stuff. If you haven't done the foundational work, you can't handle the turbo boost. That's one of the reasons the Art of Impossible Swedish, I had to write it. We found out early on 10 years ago that flow, like it's crazy when you start from the neurobiology and use it to train flow, it's remarkably easy to train. Really, really. And it, this was not the case in the 90s, right? We tried to train flow was a mess from the psychology. It's sort of metaphorical. Nobody knew what we were doing. But once we got to mechanism neurobiology, you started getting really good results. We train at a thousand people a month. We measure flow pre and post. On average, we can get a 70, 80% bump in flow, but not everybody can sustain it. Peak performers have no problem sustaining it. Everybody else could have tends to baseline because it's they don't have the motivation, grit, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that's harder for kids. So yeah, that's, yeah. sorry for the long answer, no, but that's great. sort of how I think about it. Well, if you look at kids, I mean, especially if they're in, you know, kind of engrossed play, like I watch my little boy sit there and have these, you know, elaborate conversations and play with his Legos and he's in such a zone, I kind of just chill out and watch and I'm like amazed that he has this level of focus to be able to come up with this and create these whole storylines. So maybe that's... Well, here's something funny about that. Um, so 
when you're in flow as a general rule, sound moves away or, or energy moves away from less critical things. So when you're screaming at your kids and they're mm -hmm. deep in that deep state of, of flow and they don't hear you and you think they're not listening. No, no, they literally don't hear you. Like their ears have been shut off for the enhanced focus mm -hmm. on what they're paying attention to. Um, which is really funny, which is something we do know about flow. So when, when you think your kids aren't paying attention to you, it's not intentional. It's actually biological. In, um, uh, ironically, like uh, we, for the last 10 years, we've been contractors for Naval Special Warfare. And I've gone in and talk and we work with the guys of development group. And I think it was right around 2000, maybe 14. Um, I did a talk out for uh, in Virginia Beach. And one of the other speakers was Dan Coyle. So I uh, got to connect with him and read, you know, the talent code and kind of got real did, deep in that. Did Rich bring you in? Uh, I can't remember. It's been, yeah, because yeah. he's very close with Dan. And that's the guy who also brought me into Dev Group. Okay. And I'm guessing he brought you and Dan Coyle yeah. and, and me because um, it was one guy in Dev Group who was really interested in sort of outside opinions and stuff. So what we do is uh, here at Power Athlete is almost on the physical side in terms of like uh, helping peak performance and ramping up and fostering and developing athleticism and kind of on the physical side. So that's what I was in there talking about. But um, as I listened to Dan Coyle talk, I got really into not only like, uh, you know, the mental aspect, but that, you know, that focus kind of deep practice. And then just ironically, some of those guys came out to Newport Beach where I was living and there was like a, the Brain Research Center, Dr. Amen and a few other people that they brought those guys out and were doing studies on trying to figure out how they enter a flow state to try to, I don't know, figure out maybe something happening within the brain that they could pre-select for individuals, I think is the way it worked out. And I ended up going in and uh, meeting with some of these guys and also getting into their study. And it was pretty interesting. Um, for me, I played in the NFL 10 years and I know exactly what the flow is. Uh, as I was playing, I never once heard the crowd and it was pretty amazing for them as they described it. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I mean, everything happens in slow motion. Everything gets real still and quiet. You're in a crowd of 100,000 people and don't hear anything. And it was, um, it was pretty interesting when I asked him, I'm like, is this something taught or is this something innate? Like, is this something within nature? And at the time, I mean, this is, you know, six, seven years ago, they didn't know. And they kind of resided it to the fact that it was something that you're born with and certain people have the ability to access this. And then I ended up reading, I think it was a Washington Post deal on, uh, on your book, and that kind of took me on this. And I'm, it's actually uh, inspiring to hear that you can teach people this if you understand the pieces. Yeah, I mean, the steals spend, we figured it out once with DevGuru, and this isn't stealing fire, that, you know, I, I, I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I want to say it's $3.5 million to train a SEAL to get, get him to DevGuru. And two million of that is spent on screening for ability to get into group flow because it didn't quite know how to train for it. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, a hundred, like a, a one and a half million dollars was spent on like skills acquisition and, you know, training somebody how to be a seal kind of thing. And the rest was basically in the kill house, seeing who could drop in the group flow and, and, and do that work and, and who couldn't, um, it's probably going to be the most expensive group flow filtering system anybody yeah. ever built. It's kind of amazing. The Luke and I had an opportunity to go in through the kill house on the rear. So experience with them and oh, almost wow. see and feel this <laughs> and where wow. like, it was one of the most yes. crazy experiences that I've had. So almost yeah, I've been, I've been, yeah. just being in the rafters. I'm sure you've, you perched in the rafters and watching is, is something else. Yeah. Um, 
because of the amount of precision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were on, we were on the night vision and they were doing all you know dark run. It was it was it was legit. I remember being like, can I take these home? I really mm-hmm. these would help my hunting out here in Texas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, it was legit. <laughs> I, I'd, yeah, I'd like to spend I'm a moment uh, with the word impossible. So, what kind of titles did you kick around? Why did you select this word? Is that the public perception of impossible that you decided to just start take a hammer to it and break it down? So, there's a slightly longer answer to this question um, before I'm going to get to what I to the definition. But I have spent uh, my career for thirty some years. Um, doing everything I can to figure out, like my, my beat as a journalist where I started was those moments in time, the impossible became possible. And I was studying that in almost every domain imaginable. I started in action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing. Then I moved into business. I moved into arts, culture, science, technology, and wrote books about what I discovered. And you know, on a certain level, I always say, whenever you see the impossible become impossible, you see two things. You see people harnessing disruptive, accelerating technology, and you see people learning how to expand and extend human capability. So I've written six books on technology and six books on expanding human capability. So that's been the central focus. When we are talking about this stuff, we're talking about what I would call capital I impossible, doing that which has never been done. Mm -hmm. The book that we're, The Art of Impossible, it is definitely about lessons learned from studying people who have accomplished capital I impossible, but the book is really for anybody interested in small I impossible. And what I mean by small I impossible is not that which has never been done, but that stuff that you think is impossible for you Mm -hmm. and all kinds of examples. Growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I grew in the seventies, which is when I grew up when it was a blue collar steel town. And I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know any writers. Like it was like waking up one day and saying, I'm going to be an elf or a dwarf, right? <laughs> like I didn't, I had no idea how the hell you became a writer. I knew that you could put letters together in straight lines and you got words. What and were you maybe reading you had to inspire you to be a, 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 like, what, what were you reading at that time? It wasn't what I was reading. It was, uh, I wrote my first poem literally when I was about four years old. My grandmother, <laughs> who is uh, like a Russian immigrant who couldn't even speak English, used to write, like Hallmark level poetry kind of cards. And I literally have a memory of being four years old and seeing one of her poems and going, this is crap. If she could do this, I could do better. I was four. <laughs> um, the arrogance was starting there. <laughs> and, oh, wow. uh, and I don't know what it was. I had this really bad reaction to it. And then literally I, have, I wrote my first poem when I was four. And I, by the time I was uh, 15, 16, I was writing every day. And the, but the moment you're talking about was the first time I saw poetry by a guy named E. Cummings. And it, uh, the thing about it was up to that point, like I was a really weird, strange kid. And I knew I didn't fit in. I knew I didn't think like anybody. And I didn't think anybody like, so I just thought I was super strange. And I saw E. Cummings and I went, holy crap, his brain works like my brain. My, I like that looks like normal, and if you know E. Cummings' writing, there's nothing normal about it. He breaks all the rules of grammar. He does all kinds of stuff with language, but it was exactly how my brain thought about the world. And for the first time in my life, I went, "Oh my God, there's somebody who can talk to me, and I and, and I can talk like I can. I I know how to do this. This makes sense." And that was sort of what really kicked it into high gear. And and I went from like. 
already sort of writing every day, but I, it went from like 20 minutes, a half hour to four five, six hours a day from that point forward. Oh, wow. Damn. Just needed permission. Yeah. I, I always think, um, I mean, at least for me personally, uh, when I went to, when I went to Berkeley, I got real big into like Jack Kerouac and on the road and, you know, Dharma bums. And I remember reading Jack Kerouac and that kind of influenced me. So I always wonder if like, you know, you read, like you said, you find somebody and all of a sudden you're like, Hey, this is something that influences me and I want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Tell you a true story. So I'm in a, an amazingly lucky, wonderful position that, that my books have. I've got a lot of them. They've done very well and they've moved a lot of people. I'm also pretty much on every spectrum you could possibly imagine. And when you come up to me and say things like, Stephen, your books changed my life or anything like that. Like I literally like, I don't know what you're talking about. I always think, no, no, you changed your life. My book happened to be the one time and he was able to come up to me and say something where I was just like my jaw dropped. I was in Italy and I was, uh, there was a really long line of people kind of waiting to, for me to sign a book. And there was a, teenage girl at the end of the line and she was weeping and she's getting closer and closer and I'm getting more and more nervous. You know what I mean? I'm just like, Oh shit. Oh no. I don't know what this this is, but this can't be good. And she gets up to me and she looks at me and she goes, Mr. Cutler, I just have to thank you. Your books got me through high school. And I, that I understood. I was like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. You, you finally connected because that's an experience I understand because there were a handful of authors they got me through high school, right? They got me through that experience as well. And it was the one time where I was like, wow, that really, it was the one thing that really penetrated and really like sort of stayed with me for 15 years or whatever. And- wow. You know, I, I want to go, you, know, you said a, a term here, spectrum. In terms of the going back to the idea of, let's say, by the way, the- when I say I'm on the spectrum, let me just be clear. I mean, I like ADD, a. OCD, CIA, uh-huh. LSD. I'm on all the spectrums. Okay, let's just let's just be clear. Anything that's an acronym. I'm going to use it in the more yeah. general sense. Let's, uh, you know, in in going back into the individuality of this and Little I Impossible, right? It's and that's what's interesting when you talk about these high level concepts and you use paragons and people who are like at the highest level of achievement. There's an inability, I think, for at times for the individual to comprehend that. You know, their journey is no different than this person's, right? Yeah. Two, so, an- two answers here. So one, and I gave one example of me becoming yeah. a writer, small line possible. I think rising out of poverty is another small line mm-hmm. possible. Figuring out how do you get paid doing what you love, small line possible. Overcoming deep trauma, small line possible. Becoming world-class at anything, right? And my point is, anytime there's no clear path between a and b and statistically horribly bad odds of success that's a small eye impossible and what i found nobody sets out nobody i met sets out to accomplish capital i impossible mm-hmm. right everybody i know sets out to maybe accomplish one small eye impossible and they get that one and they do another one and they do another one the only way we get through capital i impossible is through small eye impossible mm-hmm. first of all Second of all, worth pointing this out. When I started doing all this work, it was action sports that brought me in. And I was covering action sports in the 1990s. We know anything about action sports in the 1990s. It's considered the great era of impossible, right? More impossible things being done than ever before. And I was... I was in this world. I was one of the few journalists that was like deeply embedded with the action sport athletes, 
covering all of this. And you've got to understand that like one, the action sport athletes I knew, most of them came from horrific childhoods, broken homes, right? They had very little money. They had very, very uh, little education. There was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of drugs. These are a group of people anybody on the outside would have bet against in life, right? And yet here they were on a, literally on a regular basis, reinventing what was possible for our species, making it a little stranger for me. It's one thing when you see it on a screen, right? You, you watch somebody surf a hundred foot wave and you think, oh my God, that's amazing. It's another thing when you go out drinking with a guy on Tuesday night and they wake up Wednesday morning and you go out into the mountains with them and they do something for that for all of recorded history has never been done. Right. And then you're just like, well, wait a minute. This is John. He's my friend. Like, how the hell did that just happen? So my point in all this, and it's not just the action sport athletes. Every time I, everybody I, I met along the way in 30 years, there's some of the most extraordinary people that I've, I've ever lived and that I've ever met. And yet none of them started out extraordinary. They all started out amazingly average. And the, the funny story of this, I don't think it's in the book. But the way, the way I always like to exemplify this is a conversation I had, it was like 27, 28, when I, the first time I met Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer. And Laird uh, and I were talking about this very question of the impossible. He said, you know, man, people see me on a 50-foot wave. I'm 33 years old at the time, and they see me on a 50-foot wave, and they think, no way, man, that's impossible. And he's like, that's fine. But what they didn't see was me at three years old on a three foot wave and at four years old on a four foot wave and at five years old on a five foot wave and so forth. And they don't realize that last week I surfed a wave that was 49 and a half feet. So this is like a half foot bigger than what I did last fucking week, which was a half foot and so forth. And nobody sees that. That's all completely invisible. So they look at this thing and they say, well, no way that's not possible because the progression is invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would I recall now some of the key terms that you introduced in the book that almost that's that story represents and the the MTPs and then the hard goals and then uh, smaller steps. Can you walk our listeners through what you share in the book to help define and bring to life for their lives? Goal setting. We're, yes. we're focusing on goal setting, the goal setting piece. Yes. So. little bit of background before we go in is that neuroscience, which is mechanism, has finally progressed to the point that we understand like peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And that bio, there's a limited toolkit. There's a certain amount of things our biology does. Those are the things you optimize. Human beings are goal-directed machines. Essentially, we filter reality through two things, our fears and our goals. We don't live in reality. We live in a world created entirely by our fears and our goals. And if you, you are really designed to take advantage of this goal setting and to really capitalize on it, what the research has clearly showed over the past 30 years is that we need three tiers of goal setting. And the first tier is the mission level goals for your life, right? This is, this is what you came to do. These are the goals that align with your purpose, your values, your deepest beliefs. This is your, you know, this is if I was a writer, it would be, I want to write books that change the world kind of thing. That's a mission level goal. And you only have a couple of those. And they're sort of the big filter for your life. That's where it starts at the top of everything. Underneath them, you need high, hard goals. High, hard goals are goals that can be accomplished in usually one to five years. So 
I want to write books to change the world. I want to go to college and get a degree in journalism. I want to work for a newspaper for five years to learn how to report. I want to write a book on food or world peace or, you know, take your pick. Those are high, hard goals. And I think in terms of setting high, hard goals, they're goals that help you achieve your mission statement. And you sort of got to figure out what works best for you in terms of your own timetable. I have found that for my life, I am really like three years in advance is where I want to set my high, hard goals. That's what works for me. Mm -hmm. We know that these three tiers of goal setting, this is biological. Where your own time horizons are and how far out you want to set your high, hard goals, totally up to you. Right. I can't, I can't, there's nothing prescriptive I can give you. You just got to sort of run the experiments and see what works best for you. Um, and then underneath that, there are clear goals. And these are literally the daily steps you want to take to get to your high, hard goals. Now, at the start of the conversation, we talked a little about flow, the optimal state of performance. Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow, clear goals are one of these triggers. And uh, without getting too technical, flow follows focus. So it only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. All of flow's triggers do that. They help drive attention in the present moment. Clear goals does this by lowering cognitive load, which is all the crap you're trying to think about at one time. But if you can kind of export your goals for a day onto a piece of paper, right? Write a checklist for your day, basically. Um, that lowers cognitive load, it frees up a lot of energy, this helps drive flow. It also serves a whole bunch of other functions along the way. Um, and there's a specific way you wanna create your clear goals. What the can research you in, shows Can you is, dig into those other functions? Uh, uh, it, so it's, a, it's more complicated. So flow triggers total do one of three things, right? They lower cognitive load, or they drive dopamine or norepinephrine, which are two of the brain's main reward chemicals, but they're big focusing chemicals as well, right? And so goals uh, set before you, like we try to train people to end your day, the day before, by writing up a clear goals list for the next morning. That is a cognitive load practice. As you go through your day, and the way you wanna create the clear goals list start unless you're a night owl and then you want to invert this but mm -hmm. if you're not a night owl meaning like your physiology isn't wired that way start your day as you probably know this with your hardest task most challenging task most important task and really what you're looking for is the biggest win right what is the thing that if i finish it it's the biggest win over my day when you go through a clear goals list it's also very important to check those goals off this is where you get dopamine. When you check off a goal, you're gonna get dopamine. It's, this is how you actually create momentum in your life by having a clear goals list and checking each one off over the day. Each time you do that, that's a little bit of the reward chemical dopamine that's layering that behavior, helping you really kind of automatize the habit and really up-level performance. That's some, what else it's doing. There's also research we don't know this for sure. We've been working with Glenn Fox at USC as a neuroscientist who works on gratitude actually, but we're poking at uh, this in the same studies that we were looking at gratitude with. But we think goals can be used in the middle of a task as a cognitive reframing mechanism that further then it's sort of like it's setting up a future reward, like a risk, like you're out skiing and you've been skiing really well and you're like, okay, let's go hike the peak and ski that shoot off the top. 
it's a step up from what I would normally do, but I'm skiing really well. That's a new goal. You added a goal in and it has a level of risk there. Whenever we prepare to take a risk, the brain releases even more dopamine because the energy and focus we need to take that risk, right? To get up and go for it. Um, so goals can be used in situations also to kind of produce neurochemicals that will drive performance along the way. But from a clear goals perspective, the most important thing I can say is when you say clear goals, especially to Westerners, we hear the goals. Mm -hmm. We don't hear clear. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever that clear word, whatever the fuck that is. Goals, goals, goals. And, and it doesn't work that way. The emphasis is literally on clarity, right? Because what you're telling your brain is this is where to put your attention now. This is where to put it next. And thus you don't have to wonder. Your brain doesn't have to worry about the other stuff. It can taken care of you know exactly what to focus on that's the point with clear goals and you want clear goals that are always aligned with your high hard goals and your high hard goals that are always aligned with your kind of mission level purpose because everything's pointing in the same direction way more momentum way more mm -hmm. motivation so if you find yourself hitting stuff daily on the reg and you're going man this doesn't map up to my mission level goal or my high hard goals that's something you got to trim that or realign your goals or. Yeah. So a couple other things that are worth uh, sort of pointing out before we drive in. Yes, you're totally right. A couple other things I want to point out. One, figure out how many things you can do in a day and be excellent at them. And that's how many things go on your clear goals list. And anything that's going to take energy, if it's a conversation with a friend or your wife or your girlfriend, you know, or your kids, it's going to take energy from you. It goes on the clear goals list. Huh. If you're going out to work out, right, it's going to take it goes on the clear goals list. Figure out how many things you can do in a day and be excellent at all of them. That's how many things go on that list as a general rule. Hmm. Given some days you wake up, you're really freaking exhausted. I mean, exhausted, exhausted. Maybe you remove one and save for the next. You play around a little bit, but as a general rule, you know, if you if nine things are what you're excellent at, then you don't give yourself a choice. Nine things go on that list because, you know, and that's what we're aiming for with sort of peak performance. Mm -hmm. so that's one thing um, that is worth sort of pointing out uh, with that. And uh, a good, clear goal. Also, by the way, they should be process goals. Right. You, you don't want to set goals about like I'm never going to. My goal is I want to write 500 words in my new book today. And maybe if I want to get really clear, I'm going to write 500 books that make my readers feel joy or sadness or fear or whatever it is, right? That's a very clear goal. I would not say I'm going to write 500 words that are going to eventually win me the Nobel Prize or something like that. That's an outside. But I want a process goal that when I'm when I can accomplish it, I can check it off and I know it doesn't have to do with anything else outside of me. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, is the answer to your question. So the book doesn't start with goals, right? It starts with um, the mo the intrinsic internal motivation triad of curiosity into passion, passion into purpose, purpose into autonomy, autonomy into mastery. These are the big five internal motivators. And the book tells you how to stack and point all those mm -hmm. in the same direction and then build your goals on top of that. That's how the biology is actually designed to work. That's the order of the system. And so um, by the time, if you're doing, if you're, if you're doing the system sort of in order, by the time you're really setting your clear goals, everything is already pointing that way. If it's not pointing that way, you want to start, you want to start there. Mm -hmm.
But that's the same way we would approach creating and writing a strength and conditioning program for an athlete, establish their goal, the demands of the sport, and then almost walk back to where they currently are with their abilities and levels and strength and speed and so on, and then working towards it. That's what I did pick up and enjoy in the book. And it's cool that that first approach, the first section is that biology what is going on within the brain to almost create these habits and these mental focus and attention that lead an individual to creating their purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I want to highlight the, the key word that I took away, the M- MTP. So again, I put a lot of value in words like the impossible term. What is it about this term, MTP, that you stuck with and became this purpose for your readers? Well, so with all this stuff, I have found um, that sometimes you just want to be really obvious. You know what I mean? Like MTP was a, was a phrase that was originally created by a guy named Salim Ismail. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. Um, he was the original executive director of Singularity University where they study exponentially accelerated technology and our ability to use it to tackle grand global challenges. And he was... Um, Massively transformative purpose means kind of your big mission statement goals. Massive meaning it produces huge change, right? Transformative um, in the way they were using it. It's literally bringing a transform- transformative change to the world or the industry or entire market. And purpose was, you know, your purpose, your why. And um, it was interesting because Salim and Singularity University did a study then of the 100 fastest growing companies in America and discovered they all had MTPs. They all had set massively transformative purposes. And in fact, um, when they work with, when we work with organizations, when Salim's organization works with organization or Singularity University works with organizations, one of the first things they have organizations do is create massively transformative purposes. Because it gives, it tells everybody what we're here, what we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like where we're going and why we're, why we're doing it. And everybody sort of can rally behind it. The other thing about massively transformative purpose is it's not, it serves a double duty. It attracts other people to your cause. You can't get to the impossible on your own. There's no, I mean, not even small line possible. Just think about all the people, your friends, family, all the people in your life who help you, you know, accomplish anything. You can't do it alone. Um, or I've never met anybody who can do it alone. Right. Um, and I don't even like people. And I, <laughs> even I need people, right? Like, um, but uh, you can't, you really can't do it alone. And so, a massively transformative purpose attracts other people to your cause, right? They're like, oh, that's what you're here for? I'm here for the same thing. Let's work together. We'll get there faster, mm-hmm. right? So it's both, um, it, it serves both functions. Though I will say, um, I don't know if you guys have uncovered this in your research. I don't, um, I don't know if it's true for, stra- for the physical side of the coin, but I, I probably believe it is. There's a lot of research that younger people today love to lead conversations with their mission. Hi, my name is Darcy. I work in accounting, but I'm really here to feed the children. And like, it, it comes, it's like immediately, right? I hear it all the freaking time. And I'm always like, oh my God, like, shut up. One. But, um, the real reason, I mean, isn't yeah, it it's like, virtu- yeah, it's virtue signaling. It's, it's virtue signaling. It makes me crazy. But also if you're really here to feed the children, what the research shows is talking about your goals out loud gives you the dopamine you normally get when you accomplish your goals. Huh. And if you get the reward chemical 
when you're talking about the shit, you're never going to do the thing because mm-hmm. the literally the, the happy drugs your brain has created to get you to do the thing. You've already got them. You've you cheated the system. Talking about your goals makes you feel like you're actually achieving them, even though that's not true at all. And in the end, it's extremely demotivating. So there's a lot of research that says, talk, you know, have these massively transformative purposes and these high hard goals keep them to yourself. And at the Flow Research Collective, it literally is in our bylaws, you know, have a mission, stay on mission, keep it to your damn self. <laughs> hmm. that, that's one question I did well, pick it's up it's the on. first rule of Fight Club. Don't right. talk about it. You know, no if it's a, if, yeah, if it's important, you basically you keep it tight to the vest. But at the same time, how do we then create this vocal awareness and then bring our family and friends and, and team into well, I it? Th- yeah, I mean, I, you know, I... The way I look, if you know me, you know, I, I, I came here to write books that are going to have a big impact, right? That's true. Now, my actual mission statement goal that blah, 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 that is really on. I don't tell anybody that mm-hmm. ever. Like that's, that's mine. You don't get that one. Um, I don't even think my wife knows it kind of thing. Um, well, you get, are you going to tell us though, right? I, of course I am. No, of course I am. <laughs> So in I, my goal, I like I, what I really want in life is to have a mustache that's as good as yours. Oh, See, that's, oh, and that's all the time we have, ladies oh, and gentlemen. Uh, I thought I, I thought Movember was over, and yet you guys just look like uh, cops no, or firemen I, or something. You, you think I'm kidding? I'm like it's been an aspiration of mine. Oh wow! You know, I oh. never knew I was a mustache guy, but I, I was thinking maybe at the end of the year <laughs> let it go. But I got to tell you, Stephen, you, yeah. this might be a lifetime. I got a life sentence now. I, yeah, uh, no, I dare you. Uh, I bet you can't keep that mustache don't for the rest of your life don't, it reminds me of a, a mug my uncle gave me before he passed away years ago it was like a, a 60 ounce beer mug and on it it just said i bet you can't and that was like oh, my, my thing in college i bet you can't and my what there's a fortune to... cookie taped to our refrigerator that says i get great pleasure in proving other people wrong yeah yeah <laughs> like, my sixth grade teacher told me i would live to see 30 uh-huh. i sent her a postcard <laughs> Uh, dude, I, I've told these guys, I mean, my, uh, when I was 11, my basketball coach told me I was the worst athlete he'd ever seen. And I would never play sports mm. at a competitive level. Nice. And then, uh, uh you, you know, sailed that one over the bottom. Yeah, no, but, uh, <laughs> you brought up a great point earlier when you talk about Laird Hamilton, cause, um, I've heard the exact same thing in terms of the NFL where people are like, look at these big hits. How do these guys get up and walk away? And my comment to them is like, when I was a freshman in high school and I weighed 150 pounds and then as you get bigger, the hits keep, you know, increasing. And then over time, like you take the average person, you throw them into this situation, <laughs> they're going to get their fucking neck broken. Mm-hmm. But you start thinking about this idea of like carrying load, which is really the foundation of strength training. You know, the idea mm-hmm. of progressive overload that if I, you know, do a little bit more tomorrow than I did the day before, I can continue to progress. And, it, you know, it doesn't always work on an endless scale. But for the most part, it's just kind of a... Um, you know, like a, a, an adaptation over time, you increase the load. I'm a, you know, it's funny. I'm a, uh, I'm a big skier and it's ski seasons just started up and, yeah. um, you know, sort of at the expert level, skiing is a semi-contact sport because you're falling down the hill. You're not really on the slope. You're jumping, leaping down the hill. Mm-hmm. So it's like 10 foot leap, 10 foot leap, 10 foot leap. Um, and then when things go wrong, it is really a contact sport. And I was <laughs> yeah. thinking, um, this morning as I woke up and I was like, oh, crap. Like, it, uh, this season's here. Like, everything hurts. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it's a And I always, like, and my brain is never ready for it. And I always think about, you know, people talking about football shape or sports shape. 
And it's a lot of times with action sports, some of the sports, just because it's not obvious an impact sport like football is, but you're impacting the ground and then you're hitting the ground occasionally when you screw up. And I've been trying to learn a bunch of stuff this year, which, by the way, is not advisable at age 53. Like, <laughs> but, uh, but you always have to learn. Are, are you, I can't uh, stop. Yeah, I can't stop. I mean, I'm not, are you a I'm not gonna, guy? Uh, uh, I, when I lived uh, more south, I was, but I live in Tahoe now. So Kirkwood's my local. Gotcha. Yeah, no, we, um, you know, I grew up in Southern California. My parents bought a place in Mammoth in probably like 1972, which my brothers and I own oh, now. Wow. So like I checked the, uh, the weather report and it's like high pressure system, you know, the, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you let dumped. me know. Cause it's, I mean, it's an hour and a half from me. I yeah. literally can drive down the road. Yeah, no, we, we used to, uh, like now when we go, well, I'll drive and then my wife and the, the family will fly into like Reno and I'll pick them up and drive down. And yeah, mm-hmm. man, I mean, we went, I think probably every other weekend, uh, from the time I was two until I, I left for college. And, uh, yeah, no, I loved it. It's, uh, it's by far one of my favorite things. I just remember as a young NFL player, we went out to go ski and I fell and I kind of jacked up my wrist. And I remember thinking like, maybe I should do this for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And then no, that turned into not, 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not a great sport. If you, you know, action sports are a lousy hobby, <laughs> especially if you're trying to play another sport because oh, yeah. that, you know, I've broken 82 bones along the way. Nice. Um, a lot of bones. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, how many surgeries? I mean, you got to have a countless. 11 or so. Somewhere uh, face twice. Face twice. Arm, arm. Hernia. Seven, eight, eight, eight mm. major ones. Oy. You know, I, I told them the last time they put more metal in my body, I was like, I'm, I'm going, I'm past bionic. I'm heading towards fireproof. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, there's no way I get through a metal detector. Now. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, every time I go to the airport, I hold my breath. And when I'm, you know, in foreign countries with like the janky oh, yeah, older yeah. metal detectors, I'm really nervous. I'm like, I'm going to set one of these off. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get like stuck somewhere. Yeah. In made up a stand. What happened to Steven? He was in made up a stand. He never yeah, got home. Exactly. Metal. Hey, hey uh, um, not to derail you off of the already impossible, uh, but as I was doing some research, I came across the zero to dangerous. And I was wondering if, uh, I mean, it's really the, you know, this, the book is the, is the tell, this is really the show. So now you're taking people on this journey and I actually went through and, and uh, went through your whole like sign up process and the whole deal, just cause I thought it was super interesting. Uh, can you get into a little bit about like what you're trying to accomplish? I mean, I don't need to know your, you know, most darkest secret in terms of mission statement, but you know, how no, are you moving no, the pieces? No, no, Zero to Dangerous is, is, is the Flow Research Collective's flagship uh, peak performance flow training. And it's, um, it's actually sort of stuff we've been talking about. It's, the, it's motivation into goals, into flow. And it sort of closes with grit because when you're training peak performance, you want to sort of start with the motivation, go into goals. Then you start for a lot of those reasons, the curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, our five big intrinsic motivators are all flow triggers. They all drive focus right into the present moment. So what happens is you end up starting to get a lot of flow at that point. And once you're getting flow, you can train grit, right? Nobody wants to train grit if you're not getting the happy juice of flow as a reward, but that's sort of the suite. And it, um, it literally designed to take anybody from zero to dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I, I, the vast majority of our clients would train about a thousand people a month, put a thousand people a month through the program. If you go through it, uh, you go through with a PhD psychologist and or neuroscientist as your coach. 
So everybody who coaches for me and everybody who coaches for me is world-class. Scott Barry Kaufman is the world's leading expert on creativity, uh, trains, works with me and coaches with me. So you can like, we are getting literally like best in the world coaching along the way. Mm -hmm. um, and we think it's the best. I mean, as far as we can tell, it's the best sort of cognitive peak performance training in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's, there's, it's the most thorough as well. This is mm -hmm. not, this is not, it's, it's eight weeks long, but they're hard. You're going to really, really, really work uh, mm -hmm. on this program, but the results are, are significant. As I said, we're seeing on average, we're measuring flow pre and post, and we see it on average is 70% boost in flow. So it really seems to work and we use it with everybody. Um, Steven, you so know, that's zero to dangerous. Uh, like, I got to be honest, man, I'm, I get skeptical when there's a one size fits all uh, approach. Now, I'll go with you. Hang on. No, I'm no, hold on. Let, let, okay. you, no, 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 no. You should get hella skeptical. Let me address that. <laughs> no, no, no. You really should. No, no, no. Great. Thank you. Because, okay, so difference. Mo I started with, hey, peak performance is nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. And that's a limited set. I mean, we have a rule at the Flow Research Collective, which is personality doesn't scale, biology scales. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that is too often, and you guys have seen this, I'm sure, people figure out what works for me, and then they teach to everybody else yeah. and expect it to work. And, <laughs> it's, you know, it's the major I don't know what that's the expert. Right, yes. right. That's it. So, I mean, I'm I don't know what your experience was. Here's, here's how, I, how I learned that lesson the hard way. My first book on flow comes out. I'm like 28, 29, 30 years old. And my risk tolerances, by the way, are shaped by like I'm a professional journalist in my business. If I'm not nearly dying once every three months, I'm not doing my job. And then I'm covering action sport athletes. And if they're not nearly dying once a month, they're not doing their jobs. So my risk tolerance is what I think is totally freaking normal is absurd for the rest of the world. But I have no idea. I learned my initial shit about flow. I think I know something. And my friends think I know something too because I've got best-selling books and a column for psychology today and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I start telling my friends how to live their lives because I make the same mistake. You see your friends fuck it up and you're like, oh my God, I can help. I, I got the knowledge, man. And I put two people in the hospital, nearly caused a divorce. Um, I nearly killed another friend. Two friends still haven't, 20 years later, they still have not spoken to me. Uh, you got to um, break some eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> I get that I, more than, I, but it was at that moment, I was like, holy crap. And then I figured out why, right? Like basic, basic, basic stuff that really determines how you choose to go about peak performance. Like where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale? Or what are your risk tolerances? These things are mostly genetically determined or locked in place by early childhood experience. They're sort of set up by the time you're 10, 11, 12. You can change them, but slowly, like over a decade, it's like trying to change a psychological trait, right? You can do it, but turning like, you know, a scaredy cat into somebody who's incredibly courageous in every situation, you can make that transition, but it doesn't happen overnight. And so by teaching people what works for you, right, you're, you're literally screwing up that stuff. That's why personality doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. Biology, on the other hand, is the very thing that evolution designed to work for everybody. So everything that we're doing, and this is really what we've tried to do, and this is what I've tried to do from the beginning, which is create the most neuroscience evidence-based back peak performance training in the history of the universe. Like that's everything we've tried to do. And we start with the science 
everything we work on has three to five sources forever. Like I never, we never train things with people that haven't been published and peer reviewed. You know what I mean? Like we're very, very, very cautious about how we approach this stuff. And what I always tell people is like the science is the science and my 30 years of experience is right up until the data proves of me wrong. Right, right. And the minute, you know what I mean? When you train a thousand people a month, you have, and we, you know, have great data on all our clients for the obvious reasons, because we have to track everything to peak performance. Um, we have lots of, we've got really good feedback mechanisms and we rebuild Zero to Dangerous. Um, I mean, we've been, this is, I think we're rebuilding it now the third time this year right now. Mm -hmm. So we really try to stay on top of it with both the science and uh, with, with the research and the data. I'm not saying you shouldn't be, you, you should lose your skepticism. Mm -hmm. Keep your skepticism. Take the training. Sure, you know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Take the, I like swear, swear to God, because like I'm the most skeptical dude in the world mm -hmm. also. Um, which is, uh, and I guess well, well, where I wanted a, to go with it, if, if you don't mind, oh, yeah. um, is you've been 30 years in this fight and you, like you just said it at, when you're around 30 years old, you kind of had this epiphany that, you know, I was right until the data said I wasn't type deal. When did you realize you must've had a moment where you're like, we nailed it. We nailed it. Personalities don't scale. Biology does. Here's how the biology aligns. Here are the gradients on these four or five attributes Here's where everybody exists on this spectrum. Oh, here's an outlier, but here's how we manage it. Like, when did you... It, so it, it took... So it was a really weird... One, flow gives you a very peculiar perspective on, on cognitive performance because flow is optimal performance. So anything that flow optimizes, like when we're in flow, what gets jacked up? Motivation, productivity, uh, learning rates creative problem solving, all aspects of creativity. So when, when people talk about creativity, they're really technically, it's the creation of novel ideas that are useful. But if you talk to actual uh, psychologists about it, there's like 10 different mm -hmm. problem identification, pattern recognition, pattern matching, blah, 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 all kinds of steps in between. Flow amplifies all of that. It motive, amplifies grit. It amplifies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the full suite. Everything gets amplified. That's also, that's, those are the only things you can amplify. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else going on. And what's really cool is, and you asked a question of like when, it was fairly recently. I mean, like past four or five years because the neuroscience, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I always say psychology is metaphor. When, so, when a psychologist says, hey, mindset, right? When, when Peter Diamandis, who I've written a bunch of books with, he talks about mindset on stage all the time. Mindset is critical to an entrepreneur, or critical for building or he means attitude towards life. Mm -hmm. When a psychologist says mindset, they mean attitude towards learning. And what they're really talking about is a very specific set of neurobiological processes. Mm -hmm. Either these mm -hmm. things are turned on or they're turned off. Right. Everything else is a metaphor, right? So this psychology itself is a metaphor. The neuroscience really really like i'm thinking there's a paper by uh it's a paper i'm thinking on sort of like flow and all the intrinsic motivation and all like that that stuff i think it was like two years ago was the first time somebody was like hey look at all this shit it's all the same it's all designed to work together positive psychologists we've all been poking at these things but suddenly in the past two three years the full suite happened and the one of the big light bulb moments for me you guys probably know this too. I'm sure this is the same thing on the strength side. Up till five years ago, six years ago, before podcasts happened, peak performance was a black art. 
right? Like the, the best in the world. We worked for the SEALs or we mm -hmm. worked for the mm -hmm. spec ops community or this athletic team or that. Nobody talked, right? Like everybody I know who worked for Red Bull was like sworn to secrecy. They could never tell you what they're working on because they want their athletes to have an advantage. And then suddenly podcasts showed up and the best people in the world were on podcasts. And suddenly mm -hmm. all this stuff was visible and you could see, you could be like, well, wait a minute. There's like, everybody's talking about the same sorts of things. Why? Because it's actually, there's just your biology. We've got to right. be talking about the same sorts of things. And I always tell the other thing about, you said, hey, I'm skeptical. What I read the art of impossible, if you're at the top of anything, I don't care. You could be good at stamp collecting. If you're great at stamp collecting, <laughs> right? Because it's biology. The toolkit's limited. If you're mm -hmm. good at anything, these are the things you optimize. So what happens is when most people read Art Impossible, their reaction is, oh crap, I was doing A, B, C. I didn't know about D, E, or F, and I didn't know they tied together in this way. Right. But like they most people are really sort of already familiar with a bunch of this stuff because you're already trying to put it into play in your life. You just don't know that it's a system that's designed to work together. And when you put it together, you get farther, faster, and with much less effort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, thanks for like for kind of drawing this, the fence around that, right? I think what, what really resonated with me was just the personalities do not scale. You know, I think that's what's interesting. And what we find in our neck of the woods is you get into the nuance of, let's say, like nutrition or like training application. There is biological individuality that you need to take into consideration. A oh, great really? example. Would be, we won't go near nutrition because well, I yell That's exactly where time. I was going. Yeah, 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 yeah I'm like, you're totally. out of your mind if you think <laughs> I can say anything about the biology of nutrition. Right, it's right. It's super individual. Um, and by the way, not only is it super individual, I don't know if this is true on your side at all, but like, like for example, flow triggers. There's 22 different flow triggers. There's probably more, but that's what we know about. Which ones are going to work for you? Mm -hmm. um, mostly they're genetically determined or set up by your childhood experience, but they change over time. Mm, okay. So like what's going to work for you in your 20s is going to shift as you move into your 30s, as you move into your 40s along the right like so and i'm sure i would assume diet is the same way the way i eat now mm -hmm. in my 50s for you know fuel and energy is very different of how from how i ate in my 20s maybe well, it shouldn't have been well, but, no, but it is um, there's a there's research that supports that uh there's a dr michael rose uh did a really interesting talk at the ancestral health symposium uh, where he goes and he looks at fruit flies and he talked about like how come i could eat like this in my 20s but then all of a sudden we saw uh you know problems as we got really to about the age of 40 and his whole you know deal and he's a um, kind of uh, evolutionary biologist i think he's at uc irvine but his whole deal was as you hit about 40 you have to return to what's called more your ancestral diet and they've seen this with all of his studies where everything's about the same about day four on the fruit flies, about 40 years old, all of a sudden now, if you do not eat your ancestral diet, you hear this huge kind of downturn. So I think that there is a, a, a really interesting thing that as we age there, you, you have to, you know, and I'm sure you found this out of 53, you have to be a lot more dialed on your sleep and your nutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, you get your blood work, like all of a sudden now your margin oh, of error is so tight. This freaking year, I've had to double my stretching. Mm -hmm. Like I I've literally had to start stretching now twice a day, like two 15, 20 minute sessions a day, do like little yoga sessions. I can't, one doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And last year at 52, one totally worked. 
Well, Absolute could it be the fact that you're overstretching something because now you have some form of dysfunction? Yeah, like uh, a compensation um, pattern. Yeah, like yeah, a lot yeah. of times when people are stretching what they think are tight muscles isn't necessarily because they're inflexible. It has to do more with like neurological guarding. And there's a whole bunch of different, you know, plans of attack you can run on that one. Um, you know, the other one too is uh, strength training. You know, what we did when we were, you know, 10, 13 years old or what I did when I first started lifting weights is not at all what I can do here now in my 40s. But it's like, you know, that, and I think the reason that power athletes have been successful is that we've been able to hit this training program at this time within this progression and kind of move it along mm-hmm. and not look at something where, you know, you say, hey, well, this is what worked for me. This should work for everybody. And we've been dispelling that for 10 years. Like, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to get my bench up to what it was uh, right as I graduated college which was the best it ever was, I think, even though well, I like 315, 405. Yeah, no, t- I weigh 151 pounds. Soaking and, okay, uh, so 305. <laughs> yeah, got it. 225. Uh, <laughs> well, I go, I'm going for volume. I'm going, I don't, I'm not really care. I don't care about the max. I want useful yeah, strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted, it was 225, 10 times. Oh, that's what solid. I was going for. Yeah. And it took me, it took three years to work. I mean, like I, you know, I'm sure I, in college I, I managed to get there in like four months. Mm-hmm. It took mm-hmm. about three years to get back to that. Um, mm-hmm. Well, as long as you can I'm fight to get back gym, to that. Yeah. Pardon yeah. Me? I mean, as long as you can fight to get back to where you were, like I always think it's kind of like uh, the movie cliffhanger. You remember when Stallone's like hanging from that ledge right? by like yeah, one yeah. finger. That's <laughs> kind of like yeah. uh, training as you age. You're like, as long as I got one finger uh, on the I ledge. Yeah. like palming a, a icicle. I, like, <laughs> well, I will he, know, he he did the funny part. I kept, uh, I kept like I would break something. Like it gets so close, and then I'd shatter a shoulder. Oh, you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like I was doing all this, all all that stuff too. Um, but it's, I like setting those impossible physical goals. Um, at as I get older, they're more they're, they seem more fun, and I'm also really patient now, mm-hmm. so I don't mind setting a physical goal that's like two years out and just working towards it steadily. Do um uh. Do the world's best, I mean, like, like, you know, I'm sure you've worked with, you know, the who's who of all this thing, but I mean, do the world's best really set goals to go out and do the impossible? Or is it just a, a situation sets up, like Laird Hamilton goes to, you know, uh, Tahiti and surfs that massive wave and he paddles wow. out just to kind of surf that day. And it just so happens that like the perfect wave shows up with the perfect moment and then it's his all, level of yeah, training rises. That's all. That's what I mean by nobody sets out to accomplish capital I impossible. Mm-hmm. They set out to accomplish small I after small I after small I, and um, the Millennium Wave is a is a great example. But if you talk to Laird about that day, you know what I mean. Like he sort of knew because he he said at the start of that uh, they said we we don't go out right. We don't go out today. It's it's a day that and and if you say it, Laird once told me he's like look when somebody says no to me I think well that like you're not speaking the language, like when you tell me this thing is impossible, I think, well, that that's not, that word doesn't mean anything in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It might mm-hmm. be impossible to you, but like, that's not, that's not true in my world. And it's an invitation to go out there. So on a certain level, you know, as, as Laird has pointed out for guys who are wired like him. And I, you know, I think I'm sort of like this at this point now too, where I'm really looking for super hard challenges. So I think in the beginning, no, but I think when you get to like, there are certain points, Elon Musk set himself three incredibly impossible challenges. I want to be at Mars by the time, by 2030 kind of thing. These are impossible challenges. I want to revolutionize the solar industry and the car industry. And he's, you know, continues yeah. to tick them off. And um, 
so you know, I think at a, in the beginning, no. But I think you know, you know this. Like, fear is a phenomenal motivator, but not in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? You have to learn a lot of stuff before mm-hmm. fear is a really useful motivator. You want fear as a motivator because it gives you tons of focus for free, right? Mm-hmm. When shit scares you, you can't not pay attention to it. So you're saving tremendous amounts of energy, right? Your brain is 2% of your body weight and 25% of your energy at rest. So when you're trying to pay attention to something you're not into, really hard. But if you if fear is a motivator, right? Your automatic attention, <coughs> but you can't, you know, now when I, I always tell this to people, when I go into a book project, I have three books I'm trying to write. I have the one that you're going to read, which is I'm, ideas that I'm trying to communicate. Two is there's a, usually a new style, a new like actual craft of writing challenge I've set for myself. I want to try to develop these skills that I've not used before. And then there's like a big, I'm scared to death of this thing and I'm going to do it anyways in most of my books because I want to go right at that. I use fear as a compass. And I mm-hmm. think most peak performers learn to. So yeah, you get small eye impossible until you get to a certain point, but you get to a certain point you're like, oh no, I need that really big capital I impossible as a motivator because that's the, that's the level I'm trying to play at now. So you're talking about fear like um, for me I mean uh, I have a fear of failure like I've my whole life like the uh, the thought of like uh, failing and uh, not being successful is more empowering than any success and like that was how I played my whole NFL career was the idea that I just never wanted anybody to beat me so I did all the work to fucking go in because I didn't want to stand there as a loser. And I don't always recommend that for people. I think it's uh, extremely, like, very hard to live on that edge all the time, and it worked for me. But I wonder if, uh, you know, fear is a motivator or maybe, like, how does that fuel people? I mean, it's... um, Well, it doesn't. I mean, in the beginning, you don't, like, I don't think it's, as a general, anxiety blocks performance, right? Norepinephrine, cortisol, it's really destructive. But I think we know... You know, human potential is invisible, right? And it always is because you, we only figure out what we're capable of by stretching our skills to the utmost again and again and again, right? That's how we figure out sort of what we're capable of. In the beginning, because you're stretching your skills to the utmost every time you sort of come into the plate, um, if you're interested in peak performance, you don't want a lot of fear in the equation, right? Because that in itself is going to be producing fear. But at a certain point, I think you get good enough at it. You're like, you know, in the book, I talk about the habit of ferocity, which is sort of the ability to automatically and instinctively lean into challenges. That takes a long time to develop. And you don't, you don't want to get there quickly, but you want to get in the confidence of, you know what I mean? Like now, you played your whole career in the NFL that way. So if I said, look, I need you to go into a situation where you can't lose. You're not, that's scary to you maybe, but it's not terrifying. You're going to be no. able to work with it. You're going to be able to, you're, cause you're like, okay, I've done this before. I know what this is, even though it, you know, it's Laird Hamilton, the 50 foot wave, 50 foot wave is still going to kill him, right? Yeah. If he fucks up, he's still going to die, but he knows what the challenge is and it's not that terrifying. But hasn't he done like, um, I, and I mean, Larry's a classic example. I wonder if uh, the way his brain is wired might be a little bit different. But I mean, for him to go out there, like there's really no, I mean, is there an element of fear when he gets on that wave or is it just the Oh, fact Larry that- will flat out tell you, and this is in Art of Impossible. Um, and I think this is very true. He, he, like, this is a quote in The Impossible. He says, 
I have been afraid so long. It's my most common emotion. Um, <laughs> it's like finding an and, old coat. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, I mean, to me, I think that's true for every peak performer. I mean, yeah. when Laird said that to me, I remember the first time I heard it, it was a, like a, I had actually, first of all, I grew up in a, in a very sort of masculine culture where like, I thought courage meant you didn't feel fear. I didn't realize courage meant you were terrified and you did it anyways. Mm -hmm. I, right. Like, so no, I, I had it really backwards and Laird was the first person who was like, no, no courage is you don't care how it feels. You do it anyways. And he's like, and if that's the case, I've been afraid since I can remember it's my most <laughs> common emotion. That was my most common emotion. And I always say this, but every top performer I know is running from something just as fast as they're running towards something. Cause you need that. If you were going to be a peak performer, you need that double motivation. It's really too, it's really hard to get where you're going with that. And I think people who I think the people who are at the worst disadvantage for peak performance are people who grew up with easy childhoods. Mm -hmm. Those, those are the people where I'm like, Ooh, you're going to, this is going to be hard for you. This is going to be a lot harder than it is for somebody else. You give me somebody who had a really crappy childhood and I'm like, okay, there's a shit ton of stuff. I don't have to teach you. You already learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Stephen, what is maybe people adopt the mindset and start to frame this process up? What are some things that maybe like you've seen? I don't want to, it's for lack of a better phrase, what, what do people do wrong or what could they improve upon or where do they, where do they perhaps put misguided me, effort? Well, so, so one, let me just, uh, W, uh, Flow Research Collective, flowblocker.com. I can give you the URL. This is a, we built a diagnostic. There are six major things that people do that block flow. And we, we were like, okay, they come up over and over and over yeah. and over again. So we built a diagnostic and we can give, it, give it to your listeners for free. Um, but I, I, here's the answer that I think is the better one. Um, and I don't know if this is true on the power side, but I find, so we tend to, focus on the psychological and the physiological interventions. There's no such thing as far as I can tell as a hack, right? There's no shortcut. There's just getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. And we don't really focus on technologies or substances. And the example, like if I'm being dramatic, I always say, look, back when I was a journalist on five different occasions, I was shot at. And at no point in that situation can I be like, look, excuse me, sir, would you put down that AK-47 while I use this brainwave technology and drop my brain into alpha so I can dodge your bullets or, right. you, know, you know, hold up while I microdose and, you know, and I get in the right. <laughs> that, that's just not how the real world works. And less dramatically, when the boss says, you know, hey, Steven, get in here right now. And I need that presentation that was going to be next week. And I need to do it now. And I need it for my boss and her boss and her boss. And the future of the world and your job depends on it. You don't have time to reach for a tool or a substance or whatever you want to do that's very simple, that's guaranteed to work. Or more frequently, the experience we've all had. Hey, honey, can you come in here a minute so I can talk to you? Mm. Like when you hear, <laughs> hey, honey, can you I come in here a minute so I can talk uh. to you? There's no, right? Like we, you need something that's gonna work right there, right then. And so we focus on the psychological, like clear goals, right? There is nothing, the problem is there's nothing sexy about setting clear goals. Mm -hmm. I tell you, you wanna massively improve your performance and your day by writing up clear goals list for the next day and then checking everything off. There's so nothing it's sexy. 
He's not going to get you laid. If you talk about it in bars, it's not like you're icing your testicles to increase testosterone. I met somebody who was doing that recently. Huh? I was like, you're doing what? So there's no ayahuasca. Right so there's like no CEO ayahuasca trips involved in this? Because I feel like now if you are an entrepreneur CEO, I know, right? you got to go the way, down I, and do plant-based I, medicines, ayahuasca I, trips, because that's I, how I shit happens. I wrote Stealing Fire about this particular revolution, and now I sort of like, I like, yeah, I don't, it's not my, that's not the direction I would go, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I mean, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of drugs. I think they're fun. I don't think there's any wisdom there. I don't think there's much peak <laughs> performance there, right? They're fucking fun. Every now and then you need a goddamn vacation from reality and you don't have time to fly to Tahiti. Great. Psychedelics are a good evening. That's what I think they're useful for. I don't think anything else. Like, I know I wrote a book about how they can be used for creativity and all this other stuff. And it's true. And I did because it's an amazing thing. But and, and I'm not talking about trauma work, right? If you're talking about PTSD or, you know, intractable trauma, the psychedelics have been amazing in their healing potential, mm-hmm. right? But in terms of the upper edge of the peak performance spectrum, I don't think they're consistent. I don't think they're reliable. And I think they have an enormous downside, which is they create tremendous ego ex- inflation experiences for people. Sure. And, mm. Right. And just tilts people out of reality. And um, I'm seeing that over and over and over again. And then we encounter one more kid them. in a funny hat. Well, that's by the uh, way, my problem with your your town is exactly. Uh, this. Dude, uh, that's why I, I, you, that's why I brought uh, it up, man. It feels like if you're an entrepreneur in this area, there's this whole, and I think it's bullshit. I I think, I think if you want the darkness uh, or whatever they're trying to find, I think uh, you need to go out and fucking go to a, a fight club or get into a ring or you know come off the top of a mountain, like scare yourself. In uh, in things I like, it I, just like whenever we hear, we're like, ah, it sounds like bullshit. I have a quick question. I'm so with you. The you write about banister effect, and then yep. you mentioned a term egoism. I forget what exactly you said. So, what's the difference ego between ego inflation? Like uh, it, the difference so between those. The banister effect is literally uh, a tight correlation between the visual system and the in our physiology, and you have to be able to see yourself and imagine yourself accomplishing the impossible before you can, right? And it's based on the fact that when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile, it was, it took forever, right? Like you've you watched mile time, you know what I'm talking about. Mile times dropped like a second, a decade for 10 years or 70 years or something going to that. And yet he accomplishes it month later, somebody breaks his record. Three months later, somebody else yeah. breaks that record. Five years later, a kid, a teenager's done it, right? And you gotta say, well, wait a minute, like what changed? You still gotta run a sub four mile. The physical challenge is all the same. All that changes is the mental frame we built around it. What used to be seen as impossible was suddenly seen as possible and suddenly became a whole lot more possible. That's the, there's physiology underneath it. And mm. <clears throat> that's what that is about. The ego inflation, what happens with psychedelics is they seem to, uh, they radically deactivate the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain where your ego, literally your sense of self, it lives. And when it comes back online, it seems to come back online uh, much more ferociously. And this is a known issue. I mean, this has been in psychedelic lore for a very, very long time. This was Tim Leary and all, they knew this in the 60s. This is not new information. Psychologists have talked about this for a very, very long time. And 
this is why you have so many cult leaders, right? And Austin is now a town <laughs> filled with like everybody who's got like, I have a secret psychedelic philosophy and a pipeline to God. And let me tell you how to live my your life. And I, <laughs> tell you me know, more. I yeah. sounds right? amazing. Exactly. I always say, I always say, and I, to me, this is if, if somebody else is making meaning for you, run the other fucking way, mm -hmm. right? The minute somebody else starts to say it means this, just turn around and run. That's to me is how I sort of treat all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Austin has become the Mecca for this. So I know it has. Uh, well, good thing we live outside of Austin about 45 minutes. So we live out in the See? hill country in the middle You're of nowhere. Sick. Yeah, You're no, sick. yeah, we're. Yeah. But when we yeah, want a way, little flavor I, of it, we no, just, you know. I, I um, I like, uh, um, I'm not going to name names, but Tex and I went to uh, hear a guy speak for this, you know, kind thing. Of, yeah, this like a guy was talking about stuff. Yeah, it, it was like a kind of like a was it like a young entrepreneurial entrepreneurial retreat? Yeah, kind of a deal. So uh, they asked me to go speak. And then they were like, hey, do you want to just come and see what it, what it is? So I, I took text and went over there. And this individual got up there and like was talking, like went so deep into this. And I just remember thinking like, uh, this feels so disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, like whatever darkness you're searching for, like uh, you're not going to find it in your, you know, six week ayahuasca trip down in the Amazon. I mean, it just and, and then my bigger one is how do you run your company if uh, you're basically unplugging for months at a time? I mean, there were so many questions I had, but it just at the end of the day, I was like, ah. I, so we did, we did a, a very deep study with Imperial College London where they're doing most of the brain imaging on psychedelics. And we compared what we wanted. We started out, so there's a guy at Imperial College in Robin Card Harris's lab where they've done all the brain imaging work on psychedelics <clears throat> and who is set in setting is talking about your mindset and the environment. And it's very important. It's known since the sixties to the quality for like therapy. If you're doing PTSD therapy with psychedelics, set and setting really matters to the quality outcome you're going to get. And we wanted to know if there's an overlap between flow triggers and set and setting. Do they have, they're both, these are both altered states of consciousness. They have similar effects. They have different effects. We wanted to, so we ran a big study and it was interesting because we ended up not really getting the information we wanted on set and setting or on flow triggers, but what we got is a really amazing graphic map of this is what flow is good for. This is what psychedelics are good for. Mm -hmm. And we, and you can literally like look at it and go, Oh, wow. Okay. If I'm really interested in synesthesia or spiritual experiences, psychedelics might be the better tool. But if you're interested in creativity, cognitive problem solving, any of the other things very clearly like, oh, I want, I'm reaching for flow. I don't want to reach for psychedelics. And the other thing is this was also super clear. Nobody ever has a bad time in a flow state, mm -hmm. right? Psychedelics, there's all the, you know, I agree with you. I always say if like you're, you know, I think it's important to have what I call no longer at the top of the food chain experiences, which is, <laughs> you know, you're out in the back country, you turn a corner and there's a bear or a mountain lion or an ocelot or take your pick and you're like, Oh fuck. Or you go to the top of the mountain and do it on skis or whatever. I think those things are incredibly useful because when you come back to normal reality, the problems you were having with your wife, with your boss, with the shit you were working on, they're a lot smaller by comparison. And mm -hmm. I think that's very healthy and very useful and good for performance over time. But I don't, I, there's nothing like, you're not going to die from a bad trip. The fucking acid is going to wear off. 
it's going to wear off. Mm-hmm. It goes away and you're going to be just fine. So you, so what you're really saying is I'm scared of having a bad time for 10, 12 hours, mm-hmm. right? I'm scared of bad things in my head for 10 to 12 hours. I don't know. Like when you bump into a bear in the back country, I'm scared of dying, yeah. not having a bad time for 10 to 12 hours. Right. I'm scared of dying. But is that what they're real. trying to do? I mean, aren't they trying to I, art, artificially I, like create some element think, of danger from their comfort I, of their own? Yeah, home? I mean, I think some people are, but I think it's it's the thing about all that stuff is, while you know psychedelics as a general rule are remarkably safe, right? The only time they can have kind of permanent lasting harm is if you already have schizophrenia in your family. Then they're really right. Schizophrenia mania. Then they can set off that episode and you have a real problem. And this is by the way, in my family and that happened to somebody in my family. Mm -hmm. So real problem, real danger guy was a genius and he never came back. Mm -hmm. And one of my uncles. And so like, I've seen that up close that can happen. That's real. But the truth of the matter is if you smoke pot and pot didn't do it to you, chances are psychedelics aren't going to do it to you because it's the same set of mechanisms. The danger is much more, you know, oh, we're going to have a death experience. Sure you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're doing drugs. <laughs> right? we, a... we, when, when I was a kid, we were doing drugs. We went to high school. <laughs> we went to parties. We did drugs. Now we're going to have a ceremony with mm-hmm. plant medicine. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Amen. God damn it. Like, just make it simple. Um, when you talk well, about... Well, that's, the... I mean, uh, thus, Art of Impossible, by the way, is also partially you know it's funny my publicist what she's like i need you to write a blog about why you wrote this book and i was like man i have billions of reasons but like one of them was shit like this that i'm seeing all over the place where i'm like this is nonsense mm-hmm. like it's not first of all it's not that hard at this point right if you've taken a look at our you are like oh wow there's a sequence there's in order you get to the end of the book there's a bunch of onboarding stuff what the biology lines up to is about six things you got to do every day and about seven things you got to do every week Mm-hmm. And some of those things are really quick, like a clear goals list, which takes five minutes to create kind of thing. So like, that's what the biology says. You want real impact. It's not sexy. And you got to do it every day for years on end. That's how you write. That's how you do this. But that's literally what I always say is, you know, the results will, if you do it every day, because they work like compound interest, Right, you do wake up one day at two, three years in, and you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe what I achieved. Mm-hmm. And you know, the sort of the example I always like to give, and I don't mean this in a, in a braggadocio kind of way, but over the past year, I've written, launched two books and I've written two more. I've started and built essentially an eight figure company from zero to 60 people, blah, 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 and a couple other things like that. 10 years ago, if I would have pulled off one of those things over a year to two year period, that would have been a miracle, a miracle. And now it's four or five in a year. I'm not all that unusual, right? This is what it looks like as you move along on a path to peak performance because it's compound interest. A little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, you do it on for months and months on end. That's when the real results start to really show up. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, the same thing is obviously true for physical performance. Mm-hmm. Is uh, 
is there like an element of stress? Um, like I was thinking about the flow state, like, um, like you're standing at the top of, um, you know, the cornice and you're ready to jump in off of a 10 foot lip. I mean, is there an element of stress of, uh, fear of, you know, all these other things that like, I have to reach this flow state to be able to accomplish this in the best way for survival. Um, is there an easier way to kind of like hardline and I don't want to use the word hack, but almost like you put somebody in that stressful situation and allows them to reach that state faster. Um, it really, so it depends on how well you deal with anxiety, right? Some people, a little bit of norepinephrine will absolutely completely block peak performance. Other people can handle it one, but some stress you're going to have to happen, right? Flow is not a binary. You're not in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four stage process and there's different neurobiological changes under each uh, level in the first stage of the flow cycle is struggle. It's a struggle phase. It's literally a skill acquisition loading phase and frustration is baked into the process. You're going to literally feel frustrated going through struggle. That's actually a sign you're moving in the right direction. And even if it's not a long struggle, there's more and more research that shows it's not hundred percent. Um, but we're doing work that, that, that seems to point in this direction also that says you may have to trigger the fight response even for a millisecond only to drop into flow. So there's always going to be a little bit of that. Now, risk is a flow trigger and it helps people drop into flow. But what you're really after is the dopamine produced by risk. And you can get that same dopamine with an encounter with novelty, complexity, unpredictability, all these things. Insight when you link two ideas together, all these things produce dopamine. So they're all different flow triggers. So risk is great for certain people. But I always tell people, don't you like when we work with professional athletes, we train them never to use risk as a way to get into flow. You don't want to take risks until you're already performing at your best. You want to use a bunch of other stuff to drop into flow and then use risk as a way to extend the flow state, perhaps that and, and, and really maximize it towards for performance benefits. But as a way in, I think it's a really good way to go to the hospital. And by the way, most action sport athletes, you know, learn this the hard way. I certainly did. I nearly severed my hand from my wrist, from my thumb kind of thing, because I was, you know, oh, just jump off this 30 foot cliff. You'll be in a flow state when you land and the rest of the day will be great. <laughs> You're like, no, that didn't fucking happen. I triggered an avalanche. Everything slid out when I landed and I flipped upside down and hit rock. Never saw it coming. Didn't know. <laughs> couldn't, you know what I mean? Don't use risk. It's oh. a tough idea. So how are, how, what are other ways to like elicit risk other than like kind of the action sports? Ayahuasca. Well, it, so it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter. Your brain, for example, can't tell the difference between physical fear and social fear. Mm -hmm. So oh. why is fear of public speaking the number one fear in the world and not like something that would make sense from an evolutionary perspective, like fear of being eaten by a grizzly bear? Right, right. It's because go back 300 years ago, if you screwed up socially and got kicked out of the tribe, nobody could live on their own. It was a capital crime. So the brain is hardwired to treat social phobias like physical phobias and money sort of works the same way. We process money in the same structures. We process physical pain. Um, you, and it, it obviously it differs person to person, right? Like Laird Hamilton has to go out and surf a 50 foot wave to get a wrist trigger. I I'm like, you send me into six foot surf. You got me right. Like I'm paying attention kind of thing. So it's very individual and you, it, physical risk, emotional risk, intellectual risk, creative risk, social risk, all these things will drive dopamine. So if you're interested in playing with risk as a flow trigger, mm -hmm. find the risks that are appropriate for you. 
and you know set them you only it's little risks it's not huge risks yeah yeah and i guess i was asking in case you know for listeners who might be unknowingly using these things to get into flow and realize like oh i'd like to reappropriate this after you know digging into the book i gotta stop using this pattern and replace it with this Process. Yeah, I'll, so I'll give you. Uh, this is the last. I I, I got to jump because I got oh, okay. I got okay. got a ten thirty uh, thing that I got to jump into. But last story I'll tell you. First flow hack I ever learned and speaks right to this. It was from a back in the eighties and nineties. It was an extreme skier, very famous. His name was Glenn Plake. He had a huge big yeah. mohawk. Yeah, the big mohawk. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Glenn, uh, yeah. Glenn and I were in Mount Hood, Oregon. We were skiing off the top, and the top you hike to the top, and there's a bunch of shoots up there, and. Uh, we were skiing a line that like, if you fell, you die, we're going to die. There was clips on each side. You didn't want to fuck up. It was one of those. It was very steep. And I'm sort of at the edge of the thing, looking down, go, oh, fuck, really? We're going to ski? Really? We're skiing this? Okay. God, like, okay, fuck. And I, you know, professional athletes spent a really long time trying to kill me, the journalist. By the way, at one point, like recently, like four or five years ago, I said it to a friend of mine, Christian, I was like, you guys kept trying to fucking kill us. Like for years, like you guys thought it was funny. Kill the journal, try to kill the journalist. And she literally looked at me and went, you knew? (laughs) Knew. Like literally I've got seven different friends who all got PTSD. I had PTSD. We all got PTSD chasing these people around the world Uh one way or another. But um, Glenn backs up like 50 feet from this chute and he skates in and throws a giant airplane turn. So he hits a mogul goes up into the air and turns 180 degrees and then drops into the chute and skis it. And we get to the bottom and I'm like, dude, what are you thinking? Why would you do something dumb and dangerous before we're going to do something dumb and dangerous? Like what's going on here? And he's like, oh yeah, man. Something about that weightless moment, it drops me right into the zone. So when I land, I'm already in the zone and Mm -hmm. I can ski at my best. And this was I don't even think I knew the word flow at the time. This was so early in my career, but it was the first time I went, wait a minute, there's a way to work with this stuff. I didn't even like, I had no idea. I just, flow was this thing that showed up accidentally once in a blue moon and I had no idea it was reliable, it was repeatable. You could use it in a specific way. There was the very first time I was like, oh crap, this is a thing. We can do something with this. And now years later, I know that, that weightlessness, we are gravity bound creatures. So anytime the body encounters weightlessness, um, it, a huge sensation of novelty, shoves lots of dopamine into our system, drives focus, drops you right into flow. So now I often will use airplane turns before I have to ski something dumb and dangerous because wow. I know yeah, it'll yeah. drop me right in, wow. right? So um, there's an example of like how you would, you know, that's it small risk that you're taking on the front end of a bigger risk Mm -hmm, mm because it will, right. That's a way to sort of use that in a slightly different way than we were talking about. Wow. Thanks. Steven, for your respect for your time, man, thank you for giving it to us and to the listeners. I know you got to go. So uh, thanks power athlete nation. Thank you, Steven Cutler for hopping on the show and we will be in touch to, to, uh, when we release this and shoot you some care, a care package and as a token of our appreciation. Yeah. Guys, it was fun hanging out with you guys. Oh man, um, yeah, I, thank I, you. I, it was, it was, I could have talked. I we didn't even get into my strength questions, so I like you uh, should bring me back so I could ask yeah. you Dude, guys questions. We would love for to do two that. hours. Let's do Next, it. No, yeah. that's our play. Yeah. No, All right, I'm totally, awesome. I'm totally down.
Like for sure. You okay. can get, wait for it. Let's get through this. Reach out. Uh, Cause I literally will grill you guys for four hours on, on power and strength. But All right. So we'll do a shorter episode four yeah. hours. <laughs> All right. Thanks, See you guys. Thank My you. pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Stephen Kotler's book, Art of Impossible, anywhere books are sold. And keep tabs on his work on Instagram at kotler.steven. Until next time, bye!